The content in this podcast reflects opinions and should not be considered medical or clinical advice for patients or providers. Please consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. I'm Dr. M, and this is Partum the Interruption. Whether you're a doctor, nurse, student, patient, or just curious about how things work on labor and delivery, you've come to the right place. On this podcast, you'll hear how doctors think, work through challenges, and prepare for the complexities of pregnancy, labor and delivery, and postpartum. You'll see how scientific evidence and common sense shape our practice as we discuss, debate, and share how decisions are made on L&D. So sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy these conversations from Labor and Delivery. Welcome back to Partum the Interruption. Today's guest is Dr. Ruthie Landau. Dr. Landau is an obstetric anesthesiologist and professor of anesthesiology at Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Landau, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Today, our topic is pain during C-sections, and this is a pretty broad topic as we've discussed uh, at length before, but could you define this problem for our listeners? What does it mean exactly when we say pain during C-section? So first of all, as we all know, cesarean delivery is the number one most frequently performed inpatient procedure. In fact, we have data that indicates that 85,000 women every day around the world deliver via cesarean delivery. So really, a lot of women. Uh, We know that the number of cesarean deliveries is actually going to increase with a projection of up to 100 and something, 104,000 cases daily around the world by 2030. So it's really important that we tackle the problem. We've focused a lot about uh, postpartum pain, and we know that uh, 15% of women will experience severe postpartum pain. But how many women actually experience severe pain during cesarean delivery is a little bit more of a of a hush-hush topic, I may say. Um, it all depends also on the definition, what constitutes or pain. We know it's a personal experience. We know it's influenced by biological, psychological, and social factors. And in the in <laughs> during C-section, there's always this sense that patients will report feeling pressure and tugging. And yeah. a lot of us have tended to say oh, whatever you're experiencing is normal, it's just pressure, and the patient will say, no, it's actually pain. Um, Some of them will not say it's pain. Some of them will just, you know, vocalize discomfort. So it's actually very difficult to have a a number or a percentage um, that will tell us how many women have this unfortunate experience of feeling pain during C-section. There have been recent recent reports or recent attempts to tell us what's the percentage of women who experience pain. The definitions would be, you know, when we test preoperatively, um, did we achieve the desired sensory level of anesthesia? So that would be pre-op. Or the breakthrough pain during uh, the C-section and, you know, maternal dissatisfaction with the experience. Another way to identify is more like a surrogate, which is 
the interventions? Uh, was there a repeat, a repeated planned neuraxial anesthetic, um, epidural drug supplementation through the catheter, uh, unplanned administration of IV adjuvants, or the conversion to a general anesthetic for pain during the C-section? So either one of those definitions or the interventions would qualify, and it is believed that it can happen in up to 15 to 20% of patients. So a lot, a lot of, wow. a lot of women feeling uncomfortable slash pain during their delivery. Yeah. Ruthie, one of the papers that you sent me really beautifully describes the importance and magnitude of the topic that we're going to be discussing today. So I want to share an excerpt from that with everybody. It says that patients can experience psychological trauma both as a result of an adverse outcome and as a result of how the incident was managed. While a clinician may believe their patient is physically safe, the woman feeling pain during a cesarean section may not feel safe. It is important for clinicians to listen carefully to patients as effective communication functions as the basis for improving patients' perceived sense of control. Pain is whatever the person experiencing it says it is. If a woman says she's in pain, believe her, she is the only one who knows. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the difficulty because on the one hand, some patients may be expressing it more than others. Um, and it is easy for us to say, this is not pain, this is pressure and it's normal. But as you yeah. said, I think the the key to all of this is, does the patient feel safe? Does the patient feel heard? And does the patient feel that she has the ability to express these things and what's the response to her um, experience? It's not just satisfaction, but it's way more than dissatisfaction. It's, it's a traumatic experience and it needs to be addressed right then and also later on. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, we're talking about C-sections. And one of the things that I think a lot of people outside of OB anesthesia maybe don't know is that C-sections happen under, generally happen under neuraxial anesthesia. But neuraxial is a broad topic, as you and I know, and it includes both spinals and epidurals. So is there one type of anesthetic that is more or less associated with block failure than the other? Or is the proportion of patients who suffer uh, pain during C-section the same with both the spinal and epidural? So absolutely, that's a, that's a super important question and a, and, a, and a key factor. So we know that spinal anesthetics in general produce a denser block. So any circumstance where the anesthetic is provided by a spinal dose, um, the likelihood of that failing is lower. But besides the anesthetic itself, there's also the circumstances and some of it blends together. In other words, the elective C-section, which we would usually perform with a spinal anesthetic, has the spinal as the anesthetic and the fact that it's an elective, usually expected procedure with time to have everything, you know, work well, kick in well. Uh, the communication with the patient usually is um, enhanced versus a circumstance that is, I don't want to say the exact opposite, but the intrapartum epidural anesthetic that is, um, you know, the epidural that is used for an emergent 
stat section because of fetal heart rate issues, the patient has an epidural in place that, as we know, will not produce as dense of an anesthetic. But in addition, things might be really urgent. Communication with the patient might not have, there's no time to do and set the expectations. The patient may be tired. She might be exhausted in addition to having a lesser anesthetic. So there's a whole range. It's There's the anesthetic mm-hmm. itself, but there's also the obstetrical circumstance and then patient-specific uh, factors. Some patients really don't want a C-section, and if they came with the intention to deliver vaginally and were with a trial of labor and end up with a stat section, there's also the profound dissatisfaction in addition to the stress mm-hmm. produced by being worried about the baby and then having an anesthetic that might be suboptimal. What I'm hearing is there is a spectrum of circumstances. Um, you know, on one end, you have an elective spinal where you have all the time in the world to both do the procedure and test it and make sure it's working all the way up to an emergent situation under epidural anesthesia, which we already know is not going to be as dense a block. And then you also are short on time and maybe aren't able to either administer medication fast enough, or you don't have enough time to test it. And so then there's everything in between. Exactly. And and that's why it's fascinating to me that when we think about C-sections and, you know, what we teach our trainees and what we do, we think of C-section as one procedure. Um, and we always talked about post-op pain management after C-sections without really thinking about this entire spectrum. And now we're realizing for this topic that we've been keeping quite silent and, 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 and not wanting to go there a bit taboo, yeah. that it's the same thing. It is exactly the same thing. Well, it makes us feel uncomfortable, right, to, to know that the one job that we're tasked with, we're not able to do with 100% certainty every time, right? Um, that's uncomfortable, <laughs> for sure. It, it, it is uncomfortable. And there is the expectation after any surgery, including after cesarean delivery, that there will be some pain. So the expectation of some pain needing being treated with multimodal analgesia was always accepted. But to have a patient experience pain under our watch whilst yeah, we are with them different. in the operating room is absolutely taboo. And because we don't know what the patient feels, and because we do know that there's going to be some pressure and some tugging, we tend to want to say that mm-hmm. all of it is pressure and tugging and acceptable, and and that the patient should be able to tolerate it. Whereas it could be that it is the anesthetic that is not working optimally. And this becomes the failure of the anesthetic to some extent becomes our failure. So I think the most important element is that we shouldn't be feeling that we're failing, but more importantly, we shouldn't be failing our patient. Yeah, absolutely. And before we go any further, you talked about pulling and tugging as sometimes being a normal part of the awake abdominal surgery experience. Can you explain for everyone listening what it is that we look for in a block to say that it's working, like in terms of how dense it needs to be, what kind of spread or coverage are we looking for when we're saying like, oh, this is a good block, this is a dense block, and it's going to work perfectly for a C-section? 
So that's a very important question. Interestingly, our colleagues from the UK have been focused on this topic for the longest of time and have produced a lot of uh, literature on the topic. The preoperative testing um, is essential. And there are several studies, again, from the UK that have specifically looked at it. So we all know that analgesia and anesthesia are two different things. And um, yeah. It is really important to assess that anesthesia, the density of the block is, a, is an anesthetic block and not an analgesic block. And so for that, um, it is recommended to check with light touch because um, light touch is going to be the most uh, correlated with what the patients will experience during the C-section. And we know that from a, a, a not a recent study, it's now a pretty old study, where it was um, a, it, it, patients who uh, experienced pain or reported pain uh, during C-section were all found to have not had a block with the loss of sensation to light touch to T5. In other words, there was no patient with a loss of sensation to light touch at T5 that had experienced pain, which is why early recommendations on how to check the block have looked at light touch to T5 as the target. And what do you use for for a light touch? Um, like, what do you use to test? It's very important to find a stimulus that will neither be a cold a stimulus, neither be uh, a pressure. So, you know, applying, uh, I've seen colleagues use needles and apply the pressure with a needle. Um, the needle could be potentially doing pinprick, but it could also be eliciting pressure. So I usually use something where I can brush the skin rather than apply pressure. And there have been a lot of uh, debate um, as to should we be testing from bottom up or should we be testing from the top to the bottom? And I'm not sure there's even a consensus about that, but a recent publication um, from, again, our colleagues from the UK in anesthesia. So this is prevention and management of intraoperative pain during cesarean section under neuraxial anesthesia, a technical and an interpersonal approach published in March of this year. Um, so I think that everyone needs to find what works for them. But I like to take a tongue depressor, you know, the wooden things we have, we have them in the OR. I break it into two. So I have two pieces one which I apply on the arm, and I, and I tell the patient, I'm touching you, or I'm scratching you with this, you're feeling it. And obviously the expectation is that she'll say, yes, I'm feeling it. And I'm telling her, I'm going to do the same, starting from the thigh, and I'm going to go up onto your abdomen and chest, and you'll tell me when it feels the same with the sensation I'm doing on your arm. And I do both at the same time. And I ensure that the obstetricians are not placing a foley at the same time. They're not prepping the belly at the same time. So there's not too many stimulations happening at the same time. And I can do, and it, it doesn't take long. It takes 20 seconds, but I go up from the thigh laterally on, on each side, um, up to the chest so that I can identify that T5 is 
uh, numb. And I always compare. And I make sure that they understand my questions because there have been some reports where patients said, yeah, I was tested, but I didn't understand the question. It wasn't clear to me. It was too complicated. Or I wasn't sure what I was supposed to answer. And I've started stressing out because I wasn't sure that I understood the question. And I wasn't sure that what I was answering was what I was supposed to answer. But I've found a way to make it really simple. Is it the same or is it less? Another important thing is not to start testing too early because the block will not have kicked in too fast, as fast. Exactly. That was going to be my next question is how long do you wait for, we're talking, you know, a uh, typical, typically dose spinal, how long would you wait before you begin testing? So one, one thing I want to say with the spinal, we don't talk about it anymore that much. It was research from the 90s uh, that people looked at the speed, uh, the onset of a block based on the speed of injection. So that's something also that we can tweak. If you're doing a spinal and the situation is could be urgent, sometimes we do spinals even for cord prolapses, but we want to proceed fast. So I do inject the spinal dose fast. We do know that the speed of injection will predict the onset, and I'm trying to reduce the onset time. So I will inject, lie the patient down right away. I keep a little bit of a tilt. Um, I obviously uh, check the blood pressure. I will start a phenylephrine infusion right away. I know we're not really talking about the topic of pain, but just to give you a sense of the things I do before I start checking. And and I keep an eye on the clock. I would say three minutes, but not just inject and test. And as I say, I explain it to them. Maybe another minute has gone by. And by that time, the foley is in, they've prepped, they've draped. And then we tell them to check. The Brits also recommend, if there is any doubt, to confirm with a second sensory modality and use mm-hmm. straight leg raising as a simple and reproducible test for the motor block. In other words, don't make your patients wiggle their toes. There are many patients that can wiggle wiggle their toes. I can tell you, I had a C-section with a, spine, with a spinal. I could wiggle my toes the entire time. Trust me, I was checking myself just for the for the, for the sake of knowing. So don't make your patients wiggle. Or if they are wiggling and tell you, I can still wiggle my toes. Tell them, that's fine. That happens very often. But the straight leg raising shouldn't be possible with this, with a functional spinal. Perfect. So we've talked a lot about C-sections um, under like an elective circumstance with a spinal. And you mentioned that failure rates are lowest in this particular cohort, right? Yes, it, it, it is. I, I didn't actually tell you, but there's a pretty old paper right now, but specifically looked out of a cohort of over 5,000 cases, again, from the UK. The failure rate of spinals for C-section is expected to be in the order of 1%. So very low, if we believe those numbers, but it's probably in that order. It is very different, (laughs) much higher, unfortunately, with epidurals. So back in the days, a lot of people would place epidurals in the OR for the C-section. That's not a great idea. As we said, it's it's not as dense. Um, But the other circumstance that is less avoidable is the intrapartum C-section, where a patient has had an epidural um, in place and then needs to be um, transferred to the OR for a C-section. So we call it, you know, the in- initiating or um, 
loading of an intrapartum epidural for a cesarean uh, section. The failure rate of that is much higher. And again, all depends of, on the definition, but it's reported to be up to 20%. That's the more dif that's the more difficult uh, situation to prevent and to address. Um, so we can talk about that. There, so in studies that have looked at risk factors for a failure of an orexial anesthetic, clearly the epidural is a risk factor. There are studies that have reported that, and whether it is because of the lack of time for the the local anesthetics to kick in, that's one factor or because the epidural was iffy to begin with. And that's something that has been looked at quite significantly as well. Uh, and that's why we emphasize the fact that we need dedicated staffing and that the staffing needs to be expert uh, in um, converting or having a successful extension of a labor epidural analgesic for cesarean delivery. So in practices where there's no... Um, anesthesiologist on the labor floor, they might be missing the fact that an epidural wasn't working for labor. So obviously, if it's not producing labor analgesia, hoping and crossing our fingers that miraculously it will work for, for C-section is not going to work. So there needs to be a sweet spot for replacing epidurals. Um, if it feels that the epidural isn't working, replace it during labor. Or if it hasn't been replaced during labor, but you're going for section um, just not using that epidural and placing a spinal in the OR is a way to prevent the epidural from failing. Um, so it's important to ask the patient, has your epidural been working? Have you been pressing a lot on the button? There are studies that repeatedly have shown that having more than two physician-administered top-ups during labor is going to be associated with a failing epidural. And sometimes it's difficult to decide, am I going to replace an epidural? Or is it just a patient that has higher requirements. Uh, we know that our labor epidural recipes or cocktails usually have an ED95, but there'll be 5% of patients that might have a different circumstance. They might have an occiput posterior presentation with more rectal pressure and back pain, or they might be you know, a, a little bit insensitive to local anesthetic, or they might have a history of chronic pain and just have higher requirements. So it doesn't, not all of these patients having additional top-ups need a new epidural. And it's sometimes difficult to identify who will benefit from an epidural replacement versus who just needs higher doses. So sometimes, you know, changing the epidural infusion for something denser might be good. Sometimes, um, as I just said, replacing with a spinal in the OR might be the better circumstance. But sometimes the epidural is working great and it's just a matter of time. Sometimes just the patient is exhausted and will not tolerate any discomfort. And again, important to listen to them. But at the same time, it's important to ask them, what do they want? I've also been in situations where I tell the patient, listen, seems like you're very uncomfortable. Um, do you want me to put you to sleep? And they will say, absolutely not. I'm actually okay. So sometimes it goes both <laughs> yeah. ways. Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes too, I've had patients where, you know, you ask them to clarify, like, does it feel sharp to you? Does it feel like pressure? And they just say like, oh no, it's really just intense pressure. And, you know, that not to say that intense pressure is not painful, right? Like you can't always distinguish between the two, but asking them the right questions helps you 
get an idea as to like what you need to provide um, to help them feel better. And like you said, giving them the option to go to sleep a lot of times helps the patient tell you how severe it is, right? If they're that uncomfortable and it really is painful and your block's not working, I can't imagine that most patients would want to stay awake for that. Exactly. I mean, we are... We shouldn't just make assumptions and we don't know what they're feeling to the point where you were asking me before. We need to listen to the patient. We need to ask them the right questions. Mm -hmm. Are you uncomfortable? I've had patients scream and then tell me, actually, I'm okay. And I would say, why are you screaming? And they would say, I don't know. Um, So it goes both ways. It goes both ways. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. but And we're, we're touching on a very important concept that we haven't named yet, but this is shared decision-making. Because the sensation of pain is is so personal, I think that more and more we're really trying to have the patient be part of the decision. I know it's difficult, and I have some colleagues who say, I'm not going to let her decide. But if it's for pain and not because of other circumstances, obviously if the patient is bleeding, there are other reasons to put them to stake. We're not going to ask them. But for their comfort or their discomfort or for the experience or the trauma that they might be experiencing, sometimes putting them to sleep makes it worse. And I think that it's important to to tell them, I can give you more medication. I've had patients tell me, I don't want more medication. I find it very humbling because my my understanding of the situation was that the patient was uncomfortable, but she tells me she doesn't want anything, um, then, you know, we can't have it both ways. But if the patient says that, I think it's important for her to have the option and to be able to say she doesn't want anything. And particularly, uh, some patients don't want to receive um, midazolam, which is often our go-to, because they will not remember the experience. And if it's their choice not to get anything, yeah. I think this needs to be expressed. And I think it's important for the partner, the support person, to hear that as well. Having them be able to see that we're actually addressing the circumstance and offering options. And even if they think, oh my gosh, it looks terrible. It looks like you know she's in pain. More and more, I'm avoiding giving ketamine. I think that it was something that we thought is a helpful adjuvant, but too many patients have said that they feel like their their words, nightmare, I'm in the matrix, an out-of-body experience, and it's not pleasant. Yeah. So I think, you, you know, in our toolbox, we can obviously, if we do have an epidural, give more chloroprocaine. We, we, uh, the other thing that is important, too, is that we know the chloroprocaine kicks in fast. It kicks out fast. So sometimes the beginning of the procedure is fantastic. There's no pain, but yeah. it wears off in the middle. So I think it's important to also um, proactively redose the epidural, particularly if the case is going longer. So if we've given chloroprocaine as our ex- extension um, dosing, to realize that after 30, 40 minutes, it might wear off and it will wear off very suddenly. It doesn't give any warning for the wearing off. So redose, give five to 10 of either chloroprocaine or switch to lidocaine to avoid the sudden, you know, occurrence of pain. You mentioned chloroprocaine and usually, you know, the onset is fast and the offset is fast too. And so we'll redose it at about 30 minutes, um, 30 to 40 minutes. For lidocaine, um, can you talk about what interval you redose it in? Um, one of the other things that I know a lot of people are taught in residency is, you know, you should wait until the block regresses one or two dermatomes. Do you wait for that or do you just redose it at a set interval? That's a super question. Very important. Thanks for reminding me. I just talked about chloroprocate, but not lidocate. So for, first of all, we didn't 
discuss that, but it goes without saying that when we um, initiate or extend um, the, the epidural, we usually give fentanyl. And some, I know in some places they wonder what's the utility of giving fentanyl and will it increase nausea and vomiting because it's an opioid. But there are actually quite old studies now that show the opposite. Because there's so much visceral um, um, stimulation, the, the fentanyl is actually going to potentiate the local anesthetic no matter which one it is that you have used. And so it's important to uh, give 100 mics of epidural fentanyl at the beginning of the case. I think that, as I said, will potentiate, will also extend the duration of um, the block. So that's why I mentioned it is important to give that. Uh, to your point, I don't particularly wait to see that the block is regressing. I think that if by an hour and a half of having given lidocaine, uh, we're not seeing the end of the case, uh, we definitely give 5cc of something. It could be chloroprocaine. If we're feeling we're a little bit behind on the preventing and the patient is already starting to um, verbalize discomfort. But if there's time, I would give it lidocaine um, 2%, 5 or 10 cc. Some people give pepivacaine just to also, you know, start transitioning towards something that might be analgesic. I must, I must say I usually use lidocaine, but I think either one is, is fine. So an hour and a half would be my, my transition time to redose. And then, um, can you also comment on, I think there's a, some misinformation about using lidocaine after you've used chloroprocaine that some people say it doesn't work as well. Is there any truth to that um, or not? There's also been some thought that um, epidural duramorph might not be working after chloroprocaine, but that has been disproved. And there's also a recent retrospective study that was published recently, like the, this month, um, that doesn't seem to support the, the concept that chloroprocaine will prevent Duramorph from working. And we've always used it and haven't seen patients uh, not respond to the Duramorph or are requiring um, excep exceptional doses of systemic opioids to overcome in, you know, ineffective epidural Duramorph. So I think, again, not much evidence to support uh, that lidocaine will not work after chloroprocaine. And now quite some evidence to, to say that Duramorph does work after chloroprocaine. And, you know, gives uh, some adjuvants in the neuraxial too. Uh, alpha-2 agonists have been proposed in patients with chronic pain, patients with an opioid use disorder. We haven't discussed that much, but we have patients who have different basic uh, requirements or basic needs or um, tolerance to opioids or giving a, an alpha-2 agonist. It can be clonidine or dexmedetomidine, which can be given in the neuraxial uh, or in the uh, IV. Obviously, if it's given in the neuraxial, it has to be preservative-free, um, but it is available in many institutions. Um, we've using, we're using it a lot. And then if there's no access, uh, the epidural doesn't seem to be working, you don't want to continue to give something in the epidural, you can give IV medication, IV fentanyl, 25 micrograms PRN, you can use um, morphine. Do you ever use um, like low-dose propofol, just kind of like a MAC, MAC dosing? Never. 
never, never. I know I don't often say never, but I never give propofol. I think that patients don't all respond in the same manner under the circumstance. And I know it's given in certain places, but I have made it clear in our institution, I really don't want to see patients receive propofol. I would rather give an alpha-2 agonist. And recently we've started to use dexmedetomidine, uh, particularly because it has been shown to um, treat, prevent quite well shivering, which is something that also contributes to an unpleasant um, experience. So I, I'd rather give dexmedetomidine for shivering and maybe extend it as an infusion at small doses. I think patients feel very comfortable and feel very safe with that. It's anxiolytic, analgesic, um, and I find it is a safer experience for the patient and for us to manage. So if you take, um, you know, a patient who's maybe needing a little bit of adjunct IV medication, but in a way, there aren't that many options, right? If we're saying that ketamine's not a great idea, midazolam is not a great idea for obvious reasons, and propofol as well, that we're kind of left with either the alpha-2 agonists or uh, IV narcotic. What do you do when those aren't enough? Uh, or you're feeling like you're having to dose too much where you're getting a little bit worried about, you know, awareness or respiratory depression? Do you then move on to offering general anesthesia? Um, so I would start with IV fentanyl. As I said, 25 micrograms, I give one dose, another dose, see how the patient is. I might use morphine as longer acting analgesic because it's there as well. It's available. Um, yeah. The alpha-2 adjuvants, as you said. And if that isn't working, uh-huh. I will offer a general anesthetic. Um, but And again, I i don't make the decision for the patient because I think it is a big deal. It usually re- requires the support person leaving the room. And I must tell you that in 50% of the very few cases where I offer general anesthetic, because usually we've been, you know, trying our best to prevent that situation from happening, happening. But in the few cases where I've, you know, I've been contemplating the idea of doing a general anesthetic and 50% of the case, the patient says, no, I'm actually okay. And, um, just because I, I feel like I hear this a lot. Um, do you, can you just comment on whether there's any utility at all for the surgeons to put any local on the field? Um, cause I feel like that's something people offer, but I'm not sure that it does anything. So that's a very, very good point. So there are a few things the surgeons can do, by the way. First of all, if the uterus is exteriorized, there is absolutely no doubt that this contributes to significant amounts of discomfort from the pulling, the tugging, the nausea, the Mm -hmm. vomiting. Mm -hmm. And I'll use this opportunity since it's part of the experience of pain during C-section, that if you work in an environment where the obstetricians do not exteriorize the uterus, you're really lucky because that makes a big difference. And if the uterus is exteriorized and the patient is uncomfortable, it is acceptable to suggest and ask the surgeons to uh, put the uterus back in, even if they haven't finished closing it, because there is no benefit to exteriorizing the uterus to begin with. So a lot of literature, some of which was published by obstetricians in OBGYN journals, but there is no surgical benefit to exteriorizing the uterus. It doesn't reduce the bleeding, it doesn't reduce the surgical time, and it only increases um, 
the discomfort for the patient. So before I would do a general anesthetic, before I would do, you know, aggressive things on our end, I will ask the obstetricians if it is possible for them to place the uterus back in. That's the first thing in terms of surgical uh, help, if I may say. The second thing, if the uterus is back in and we are approaching the end of the case, yes, I think there is value in having the obstetricians um, do some infiltration. And there, there are some studies and a systematic review meta-analysis by our colleagues from Stanford that show that actually obstetricians adding some local anesthetic before closure is as effective as a tap lock. So I would say yes to that, um, but not obviously if if they're still you know in, in the in the middle of the procedure and because it won't it won't help no. Right, but the first thing help. is absolutely for them to replace yeah. and and the the, the amount of pulling they do i mean i often look you know above the drape to see what they're doing if you look at what they're doing there's a lot of pulling and obviously it's going to cause more visceral discomfort because of the amount of traction on the peritoneum this is this is causing this is actually discussed quite extensively in several of the recent recommendations is to have an intraoperative huddle with the obstetricians um to see where they're at, what they can do, uh, what we should do in, in to, to, to help with the situation. So absolutely discuss with the obstetricians for um, what can be done during the case. And the same, by the way, we didn't talk about it enough, but at the beginning of the case too, is there, is there time to replace the epidural, time to replace the, spi- I mean, replace the spinal and do things like that. The, the communication with the obstetricians is always desirable. That goes without saying. So uh, I just want to summarize. We talked about so many things uh, related to intrapartum C-sections. So I want to emphasize the importance of checking on our patients when they're laboring. So maybe every couple of hours, somebody should at least go by and make sure that that epidural is working, particularly if you uh, have a patient that's at elevated risk for having a C-section. And then just making um, early, taking early interventions and uh, trying to troubleshoot that epidural to see if it's going to work, if you would be able to extend it if you needed to for a C-section. And then once you get to the OR, if you have time, just communicate and try to um, optimize the epidural. If it doesn't work and you have time, consider with another epidural or a spinal, depending on what the situation is. Uh, And then use some IV adjuncts and really communicate well with the patient about what they're feeling, what their desires are, uh, and what options they're willing to accept. And of course, we have to do our part to stay on top of our medication redosing, use the appropriate adjuvants to um, give them the highest quality block we can, uh, and then always consider general anesthesia. I know a lot of us um, are just really trained to be fearful of general anesthesia in pregnant patients, but the reality is with video laryngoscopy, and especially if you have a little bit of help, you know, airways are becoming easier to manage in pregnant patients, right? So um, we should always remember that if the patient is not responding to our other interventions, that we uh, we have to be comfortable doing general anesthesia on them. Absolutely. And one thing with the general anesthetic, um, sometimes, as you know, we've agreed, it's it becomes unavoidable. Um, I think it's important with a general anesthetic to avoid another complication, which would be awareness during general anesthesia. So I've seen that happen too. The general anesthetic is offered, but then the patient um, 
here is everything. So that adds to the to the traumatic birth experience. So we we discussed all of this and the fact that it can result in a traumatic birth experience. And I think that's what's new to us is that we need to follow up with the patient. And sometimes, you know, in PACU is not the right time to discuss all of it because they're still overwhelmed. So there needs to be a transition, you know, a day, two days after. I know that for us, for most of us, it's a difficult conversation because again, we feel that things were not optimal and obviously none of us wants to um, inflict that to our patients. And I think we don't have the appropriate training either. And, also the ability to do that follow-up. So having a connection with maternal mental health services in your institution is important. Um, Most institutions now have um, trained people for traumatic birth experiences and adding, you know, anesthesia complications as a chapter into the traumatic birth experience is something that is happening nationally. But having the patient being followed up is very important. As I always say, what happens in the operating room doesn't stay in the operating room. We need to be able to follow up these patients. Yeah. Do you think it's important for the provider uh, who was there during the C-section to be the one to follow up with the patient maybe one or two days later? Because, I mean, I don't know if other people know this, but obviously you and I are very familiar with in anesthesia. We're all over the place, right? Like one day we're at L&D, another day we're an outpatient. And so some of that continuity um, that I think surgeons have with their patients, we just, it's impossible almost to have it. Is there any value to the same person coming back to see the patient, um, assuming the rapport was okay? Um, or do you think that it should be somebody else? Does it matter as long as the patient is seen? That's a, that's a difficult question. I think it's important for the anesthetic debrief, in other words, to, to explain what happened. Because as much as we can describe to a colleague, you know, I gave this, I gave that, I did this, I did that, might be difficult. And there'll be some information that's lost in the conversation. So I think the initial debrief, and it can happen within the first 24 mm-hmm. hours, hopefully um, that person is still around. And to your to your point, should it be the same person or not? I think it's, it's very... I don't know that there's an absolute rule... Um, whenever it's feasible, I think it's better. But the follow-up is going to be potentially be lengthy, yeah. long. And obviously it can't be by us. It can take weeks and sometimes yeah. months. But I think it's important. Everybody, they all say they need to have their experience acknowledged and feel the validation and feel heard. And then some patients will say, yes, no, I want to speak to the anesthesiologist. I don't. Um, I think both, I mean, we need to offer them the the possibility. And I can imagine patients saying, I don't want to see the same person. Or I do want to see the same person. <laughs> yeah, I think um, we've all heard uh, heard both of those. I just want to end this conversation with another uh, quote from one of the articles that you sent me. Uh, and that was, Ultimately, listening to the patient before, during, and after the cesarean section is key. While the failure of our neuraxial anesthetic may be difficult to accept, our true failure is when we fail to acknowledge that the patient is experiencing insufferable discomfort or pain and we did not act upon it appropriately. Yes. So, Ruthie, thank you so much for talking about this with me. We could go on forever and hopefully we'll have a follow-up discussion about this and other topics 
Um, it was really a pleasure to talk about this uh, topic with someone who's so passionate about it. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Viba. I am passionate about this. I'm passionate about anything that can improve patients' experience, and this is a big one. So thank you for the opportunity. I hope uh, the audience will find this helpful. To access even more physician-made content, follow us on our socials at SafePartum and sign up for our newsletter at safepartum.com.